I'm glad you guys are here. I wasn't going to say anything, but there's an umpire in the room, and somebody came up to me and said, I heard you got thrown out of the JUCO game last night, so I just want to clarify. Um, I was thrown out of a, the Junior College World Series championship game last night in the seventh inning by the umpire. Uh, we were the host team, and I wasn't saying anything bad. I wasn't saying anything at all, actually. But uh, one of the players on the team that we hosted was running his mouth, and the umpire looked over and threw him out. Well, he hid down among the players, and somebody had to go because they couldn't, you know, the coach was arguing for the team. Uh, well, who was it? How do you know it was him? And he goes, I saw him. So in that situation, for you baseball guys, you know they've, they've got to throw somebody out. They can't just, they're going to arbitrarily pick someone if they can't prove who it was, and the coach is going to argue that. So I realized it was my duty because I was the lowest man on the totem pole. So I stepped out of the dugout and I said, it was me. And he goes, get out of here. So I had the walk of shame from the third base dugout all the way down the line. And then the guy escorted me all the way to the bus or outside of the field. And I snuck back in and I watched the rest of the game from right field. But Jared, I thought you'd appreciate that. You know that situation well, I'm sure. I got some kudos from the JUCO committee uh, and the parents and the players and some other baseball guys that said, did you just take one for the team? And I said, yeah. And I've never been thrown out of a game before, and I've always kind of wanted to, but just not like that. <laughs> so I didn't even, get my, didn't even get my pound of flesh, Steve. So anyway, do you hear any rumors that the, I was being uh, mouthy or whatever? It's not true. I did not say a word. Uh, but I did accept the, uh, the penalty, kind of. I went and watched the game. You're not supposed to. All right, so we're going to get back into Matthew, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, the first chapter, if you turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, uh, the first chapter has 48 verses in it. And for those of you that haven't yet understood or delved into the you know, how the Bible is written. We have, you know, people say book, chapter, verse, like Matthew 5, verse 12. In the original writings, there is no number 5, and there is no number 12, but the people that, the council that put the Bible together, and the books and the letters, and they canonized it, they, they put chapters and verses, and even titles to certain subjects in the Bible to help us understand more, you know, and, and maybe get to it a little bit quicker. So like uh, in Matthew 5, when it says salt and light, from verse 13 to verse 16, is explaining what Jesus is saying about disciples of Christ being the salt of the earth and the light of the world. So we don't have that in the original text. Uh, it just helps us, you know, kind of get to where we want to get. So this first chapter of Matthew 5, or the, fir the, the first 48 verses, uh, the first 48 sentences, whoever the, when they put it together, they decided that this verse in 13 would say this, and this verse in 14 would say this, and this should be verse 15. We don't have that in the original text, but it makes a very good transition from Matthew 5 to Matthew 6. It seems like the first 48 sentences or subjects or verses in the fifth chapter um, is talking about this descriptive character traits of of who we are as Christians, and, and the Beatitudes are talked about, which, you know, these character, 
some would say they're not character traits, but I would say meekness or um, an action of mourning, uh, a, mental, uh, a mental effort to mourn over our sin. Or in verse 6, it talks about hungering and thirsting for righteousness, which is something we do, we desire, we crave so that we can be filled. So when we look at this first chapter, and it establishes the humility and repentance and desiring righteousness and empathy and, and pureness in art and evangelism and persecution. Those are basically what it talks about. The Beatitudes, the people that are blessed, are those that have these attributes. And then it talks about who we are as disciples of Christ, being the salt and the light, and why Jesus came on earth um, and our righteousness. And then it talks about our heart and how uh, in regards to how we feel and how we think and how we speak and how we act in regards to hate and lust and integrity and promises, retaliation and loving people. And so that's pretty much, we could spend a lot of time on, um, we could spend a lot of time on Matthew 5, a lot more time on Matthew 5 because it just continues to get deeper and deeper the more you dive into it. Um, But I wanted to move on to uh, chapter 6. And we're going to jump right into chapter 6. I don't recommend ever stop reading chapter 5. There's so much in there for us to learn and and become more Christ-like of who we are as disciples. But in chapter 6, we're going to read the first 18 verses because the first 18 verses of chapter 6 seem to be like one subject, I guess, um, or one idea, which hopefully we'll see here in a minute. So... Matthew 6, 1 through 18, I typically don't read this lengthy of a, a, a section, but I think it's apropos. Beware, this is Jesus talking still, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. Hey, is there any way I can shut that, this thing off here? It just keeps blowing the pages. Are you guys hot? No? Which one is it? Is it this right here? Look at that, push power. If anybody needs to turn it off later, just push power. All right, let's, now it's this one. Well, it's, we're going to see if this will work. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be done in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive other 
to their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The two words that I want to uh, look at and, and that I notice when I read these first 18 verses of Matthew chapter 6 are the words when, W-H-E-N, and reward. Those are the two words that we're going to look at. And it doesn't say in verse 2 or verse 5 or verse 16, if you give to the needy, if you pray, if you fast. It says when you give to the needy, when you pray, and when you fast. There's this implication from God that these are things that the disciples are going to do. And then he also, in verse, uh, verses 4, 16, and 18, he's talking about this idea of a reward. We're going to talk about more about the reward later, but I want to break down this chapter, this verse, verse 1. I know I read 18 verses, but I think we might end up just making it through one verse today. And it's this idea that Jesus says, beware. Beware. That there's so much in that one word, beware. This word in the, in the, original, in the original writing, this word is prosecco, and it means to take heed. It means to pay attention, to be cautious about, to adhere to, to apply oneself to, to beware, to have regard. That's what the word means when he says, beware. And I love the fact, absolutely love the fact, in religion, in our faith, in our Christianity, that Jesus loves us so much. I want you to think about the fact that he said to his followers, he said to his people that he's trying to disciple, he's trying to teach, he's saying, be cautious, adhere to, apply oneself to, have regard, beware, take heed. And we see this as who God is from the very beginning. And I believe it's very important that we as people that say, I want to follow God, kids, I want to follow Jesus, I want to I do what he wants me to do, I think it's important to recognize really who God is. Because I think there's this completely wrong concept of what's taught about who God is and what the scriptures teach. But this God that we serve, this God that created the universe, from the very beginning of time, from the very creation of man, he has been warning and instructing and in teaching us for our own good. In Genesis chapter 2, we see he creates mankind, male and female, he created God in his image, or man in his image. He creates them, and he says, hey, I'm going to give you all of this, and you're going to have dominion over this, and you're going to plant, and you're going to cultivate, and you're going you're to eat, and it's wonderful, I'm giving it to you. However, you can have this fruit from the tree of, the, uh, of, the tree of life, you can eat of it, but be careful of this one. That's, that's God's nature. God's very nature is to tell us, don't do this for your own good. 
And we see that after Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Jacob has these 12 sons, and one of his sons is Levi. And then Levi, later on in the, in the Levitical uh, family tree, we have a man named Moses. And Moses gets these laws from God. And he goes up on the, the, the Mount Sinai, and he gets the Ten Commandments. And then 18 chapters later, in Deuteronomy 28, it's one of my favorite passages in the Bible, to conflict with the idea that there is not a reaping and sowing in, in the world. And I go, well, well, if God is the same today, yesterday, and forever, why does he say in Deuteronomy 28, hey, here are some blessings for obedience. This is the wonderful thing about God. He, he lays it out there as simple as we can see, and he says, if you want to be blessed, be obedient. Do, do these things. Be obedient to my rules. Be obedient to my laws. Be obedient to everything I'm telling you. And here is the benefit of being obedient. These are the blessings when you obey me. And if you haven't read Deuteronomy 28 through 30, I highly encourage you to take 20 minutes and read Deuteronomy 28 through chapter 30. And it's talking about the blessings and the curses. And I love the fact that our God from the beginning in the Old Testament, and he just brings it right on into the New Testament, and he tells his disciples, beware, be cautious, take heed of what? Of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Beware, be cautious, be careful, of not practicing your righteousness so that you can be noticed, so that you can be glorified. He gets right down to the heart of things. And in, in this context, from what I understand, this, this act of righteousness or these acts of righteousness, when he says your righteousness, if you look at the subject matter, that he goes on to talk about in the next 18 verses, he talks about three things. He talks about giving alms, he talks about prayer, and he talks about fasting. And we're going to go over every one of those things in detail over the next couple of weeks, but I think it's very important that we understand what he's telling us to be cautious of. And that, that he's telling us to be cautious of them. Now, one commentator who I, I, I like to read because I think he keeps it on a, a very uh, basic level and, and kind of, a, he doesn't use million dollar words so you have to look up to understand what he's saying. You can just read it and go, oh, that makes sense. He said this about that. He said, to the Jew, there were three great cardinal works of the religious life, three great pillars on which the good life was based, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. Jesus would not for a moment have disputed that. What troubled him was that so often in human life, the finest things were done from the wrong motives. Is that people were doing things in order to be noticed by men. They were doing things with the wrong motives in heart. And this is a side note for much later, probably, well, much later, probably next week, is this almsgiving idea. This almsgiving um, was different than the tithe. You see, the almsgiving, if you could flip over to Luke chapter 12, which should be in your notes, but in Luke chapter 12, verse 32 through 34, 
the wrong chapter. There we go. Fear not, little flock. Now, he just got done telling his disciples not to be anxious, that God will provide your food. He'll provide your clothing. He's not, he, he, your food is more important than, and your body more important than clothing. Consider the ravens of the air, and God takes care of them. Look at, uh, look at the grass. I mean, it's there. It withers one day. And do not, do not worry or seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink. Don't be worried. And then he says, fear not, little flock, in verse 32, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide for yourselves with money bags that do not grow old with treasures in heaven and that does not fail for there is no, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. So he's talking about the needy and, and giving and selling your possessions and giving to the needy. That is a different concept. That is alms giving to the poor that's not talking about the tithe. The tithe, we're going to look at next week, if you haven't been a part of a tithe sermon here at this church, at this body of believers here, I think it's going to probably change your perspective a little bit on the tithe. But I don't want to get into it because I can roll with that for hours and just talk about the Old Testament tithe and the three tithes that were given and why they were given and who they were given to. But this is different than almsgiving. So, Back to this, the three great religious cardinal works of the Jewish people were almsgiving, not tithes he's talking about, he's talking about almsgiving, giving to the poor, and then prayer and fasting. The tithe was required by law, the alms was not. And then he says, beware of practicing these righteous acts before other people or to be seen by them with the intent that others take notice. This story this here reminds me when, when I, being in the sports world and, and enjoying it so much, and since I was a little kid being in the sports world, and, and just that was, that's what we did. And when I, when I see this, beware of practicing your righteous deeds or your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, my mind naturally goes back to the sports world. And I, and I see it today. I can remember back in 1980-something, uh, we were playing football in the, in the yard. It was the Super Bowl or whatever it was. It was an NFL day when we used to watch NFL. We don't anymore. But the Cincinnati Bengals had a player. His name was Elbert Woods. You remember Elbert Woods. And he made popular this touchdown dance. And the touchdown dance was he would score, and then he would score a touchdown, and he would get in the touchdown, and he would do the icky shuffle. You remember, you don't know what the icky shuffle is, Josh, but I'm about to show you. You know what the, so he would go, he'd go. And then he would slam the football, he'd spike the football, and everybody would go crazy. And that was not the very beginning of the touchdown celebrations, but it was kind of the, it was part of the beginning. It started in the 70s with a guy they called White Shoes, and, and, but then, it, but then, but this guy here kind of made it really popular. Now everybody's got this touchdown dance. And I see it in baseball. In 8U, 8 years old and under baseball tournaments, all the way up to the major leagues, you guys know where I'm going with this. They hit a double, and they run to second base, and there's all these different things they do. Some of them get on second base, and they do the Superman. Or they get on there, and they, they throw the dice. Is that one of them? Um, the fisherman. I saw the fisherman uh, from a kid from Wabash. He got on second, hit a double, and he goes like that, 
and he hooks it up, and that's what he's, he's celebrating on second base after his double. And then there's the push-ups. You do a double, and you jump down, and you do like five push-ups, and they jump back up. And pitchers have the same thing. We had a pitcher that did that, and it was in a moment where I was like, ah, oh, I should say something, but I'm not. He strikes out a kid, and he does the old, the sword. Is that how you do it? You draw the sword in. Like you strike a kid out, and you do the sword. Or the arrow. They strike a kid out, boom, they throw an arrow in the sky. And they just, there's all these antics that people do in sports. They do the touchdown dance. They do the celebration. They do the double at second base where they do something. And it frustrates me because I think what it does is it says, look at me. It's all about me. This is totally different with bases loaded down by two and a guy hits a bases clearing triple and he gets on second and he's like, yeah, and he's all pumped up. In the heat of the moment, in the passion, the Kirk Gibson home run in 1988 where he comes up limping to the plate, he hits a bomb, he's running around first and he does this as he's crossing second base. That was a, a moment of excitement that he got his team ahead, but it wasn't a calculated, a predetermined dance that says, look at me. And that's why this story in Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus is talking about this, it resonates with me because I understand it. It says, don't do your righteous acts to be seen by other men, to be seen by other people. Don't do that. And one of my favorite running backs of all time, when I used to watch football, was Barry Sanders with the Detroit Lions. The guy, was he was this tall, and he... We would emulate him in the playground, and how did he bounce from here to here? He would stop, he would bounce over, he would spin, he would score, and it wouldn't matter if it was a two-yard two run or a 60-yard run. Detroit, that's your team. He would score, and every time he would hand the ball to the official, and he would walk back to the bench. There was no pomp, no circumstance, nothing. It was just, I did my job and I'm moving on. He didn't celebrate. And I just admired that guy so much, and he was interviewed, and the interviewer says, when it came to touchdown celebrations, you were famous for simply handing the ball to the officials, no spikes, no shimmies, no sharpies. Were you ever tempted to pull a Chad Johnson? Well, Chad, Chad Johnson was Bengals, right? Chad Johnson would take out a sharpie and sign a football or something like that. Every time he scored, he was all, he was all about, look at me. And Barry Sanders said, not really. I had my own style of the way I played the game. I took more of a business approach. At the same time, one of the things that makes football so great is that you don't always know what to expect. So I think that a spontaneous celebration, one that's natural, is good as long as it doesn't get carried away. It's okay to have this excitement in the heat of the moment, but to turn everything back on us is wrong. It's against what God says. And maybe that's why when I coach, I'm like, oh, we don't do that. And maybe my spiritual belief about this thing is being implemented into why I don't agree with it, why I don't think it's good. Because it takes it from the team to the individual. And when we celebrate our acts of righteousness, whether it be giving to the poor or prayer or fasting, and it becomes about you, you're taking it from God and making it about the individual. And that's what Jesus is challenging us. And that's what he's saying, beware, be cautious, don't do this. Is that making sense? Then there's this thing that he says right after that, which is really interesting. 
After he says, be careful, this is not what I desire for you. In order to be seen by men, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. If you do what? If you do your acts of righteousness to be seen by other people. If you do your acts of righteousness to be elevated. And, we can see, and we're going to look at it in Scripture with Ananias and Sapphira, what happened to them when they sold their field and they brought the money at the apostles' feet and said, here you go. And they said, is this all the money you got from the field? And they says, yep. Everybody look. We just donate money to the church. And guess what happened to Ananias and Sapphira? They did. <laughs> they died. Uh, one and then the other as soon as it was discovered. They lie to the Holy Spirit. And he says, if you do these things, you will not get your reward from your Father in heaven. This begs the question, a few questions actually, about this concept of rewards. The first question is, are we on a reward system? My dad's famous for saying, uh, is there preferred seating in heaven? He's asked that many times in Bible studies. Uh, are we on a reward system? If so, what are the rewards? And what does reward even mean? I mean, I think it's important to look at the word and see what it means to understand if we're on a reward system. So the reward system, or reward in the Greek, it's a primary word that means to pay for services, whether good or bad. It means wages. And so that's what it is. You're not going to get your wages. You're not going to get, if, if you get your, if you have your righteous acts and they're done before men, in order to be seen by them, you're not going to get your wages or your service rendered, whether good or bad. Primarily good in this situation. Are we on a reward system? What does the Bible teach? Many people struggle with the idea that we have some sort of responsibility when it comes to our faith and that there is going to be a reward for those who do things. And again, I have to go back to the fact that in Matthew chapter 4, um, not 4, Matthew 5, not 5, is it Matthew 6? Matthew 6, 1 says, you will have no reward. Um, in verse 2, uh, I'm sorry, verse 4, that's where I got messed up. Matthew 6, 4 says, so that your giving may be in secret, your Father who sees in secret will reward you. In verse 6 of chapter 6, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who is in secret will reward you. In verse 18, it says, But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Flip the page to Matthew 10, verses 41 and 42. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. Flip to Matthew chapter 25. In Matthew 25, we have the parable of the talents. You guys have read the parable of the talents, I'm, I'm sure, or at least have, have uh, heard it. This man goes on a journey and he calls his servants and he gives them his property and he gives, them a, uh, he gives one five talents, and to another he gives, uh, or he gives five talents to one, 
To one he gives two, and to another he gives one, each according to their ability. And so they went away, and they, they, they put their money to work. Two of them did, one of them didn't. And in, in reward for them putting their, their talents to work, which God gave them, the response from the, the um, man who had the servants was that he doubled what they had. So there was a reward system given to the parable of the talents. In, in the final judgment, in Matthew chapter 25, 31 through 46, uh, he talks about giving a reward. And if you read those passages, you won't read them because they're lengthy readings, but if you look at Matthew 25, the parable of the talents and the final judgment, there's this idea of a reward system found in the New Testament. So this author, when it comes to these rewards, is what is he talking about? He's talking about services rendered or paid, um, wages. This one author said, it is abundantly clear that Jesus did not hesitate to speak in terms of rewards and punishments, and it may be well, uh, it may well be that we ought to be careful. I want to read this again. It is abundantly clear that Jesus did not hesitate to speak in terms of rewards and punishments. And it may well be that we ought to be careful that we do not try to be more spiritual than Jesus was in our thinking about this matter of reward. If we, if we look in the New Testament and we see the concept of rewards from God based on what we've done, based on our actions, based on our choices, based on our decisions, what this author is saying is we got to be careful not to say we're going to be more spiritual than Jesus. When Jesus talks about it, we ought to say, okay, that's his economy. We're just a part of it. We don't determine the economy. We don't decide what the rules of the economy are. We just accept the economy. And for us to say, well, no, 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 anything we do, are you going against the teaching of Jesus for the sake of spirituality? Or are we going to go, you know what, God says there's a reward? I want that reward. <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you. I want the reward from God. I want to experience what these rewards are. And if you see in the Old Testament, it, it, it transfers to the New Testament, but transfers differently. In the Old Testament... In Deuteronomy 28, let's just read a couple of passages from Deuteronomy 28. So you can get an idea of what the Jewish people, the mindset they had. Now I'm starting to get warm. The Jewish mindset they had. In Deuteronomy 28, he says, If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. Listen to the blessings that are coming from obedience. Listen to that for a second. If you faithfully obey, if you faithfully obey, obedience is a choice. When you tell your dog to sit, that dog can choose to obey you or choose to disobey you, mostly based on training. And when I say to my children... Go clean your room. They can choose to obey me or choose to disobey me. 
If they obey me, they continue in my wife and I's good graces. If they choose to disobey, there are repercussions to the disobedience. There's a punishment for disobedience. Now, if I were to tell Lily to clean her room versus pick up a couple of toys, that's different. It's all based on knowledge and ability, right? Titus, pick up toys. No. Titus, go wash the truck, move the skid steer, and backfill that foundation. He can do that. Lily, pick up the Legos. <laughs> See, there's a big difference in age and accountability and understanding. But there's still an obedience that is required by mom and dad. God says, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, listen to the result of this. The Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on the earth. What changed? The blessings that we see are continual. Blessed shall be the fruit of your room, the fruit of the ground, the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket, your kneading bowl. Blessed are you when you come in and blessed when you go out. People will be afraid of you. They will lose to you in battle. It's this constant, you will win. You will be blessed. Life will be good if you obey me. The reward was based on the obedience. I, I can't see it any other way. I, 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 I'm not going to say I refuse to, but I can read and I can understand basic concepts that God lays out. And that's what he lays out here. So does that mean in the New Testament, the rewards are the kneading dough or the fields or the wars? Are we going to win battles? It's clear in the Old Testament there's physical blessings. And I've said my entire preaching career and understanding is what is physical in the Old Testament is spiritual in the New Testament. There are physical things that happen that apply spiritually in the New Testament. Physical in the Old, spiritual in the New. In the New Testament, I see some promises that almost would differ from that. I mean, Jesus said, you're going to face trials and tribulations. Jesus said, you're going to face persecution. Jesus said, you're going to face suffering. You might even face death. You look at the Apostle Paul, who is extremely faithful, one of the most faithful men we have in the Bible, if not the most faithful man, as far as once he was converted, he moved on and didn't look back. He fought the fight, he finished the race, he kept the faith, and what was his result? Beaten, stoned, stoned um, persecuted, shipwrecked, stuck on an island, starving, without clothes. I mean, he just was, he went through some hard. It doesn't sound like he was blessed in the Deuteronomy 28 passage. So, I'm not saying that good things do not happen when you obey God. I think it's obvious in my wife and I's life, we recognize that every good thing we have comes from the Father. Every good thing we have comes from the Father. There's not anything we don't possess that we are stewards of that we don't recognize, yep, that belongs to God. He's just allowing us to use it 
That's it. Our children, house, land, vehicles, food, whatever. It's all providence of our Father, our King. And He blesses us. I do believe that, that they, those blessings come from Him, but I don't believe those are the rewards that He's referring to in Matthew 6. So what are they? Well, it's been said that the great paradox of the Christian reward is this. The person who looks for the reward and calculates that it is due to him does not receive it. The person whose only motive is love and who never thinks that he has deserved any reward does, in fact, receive it. The strange fact is that the reward is at one and the same time the byproduct and the ultimate end of the Christian life. The reward is the byproduct of our life. And so what are these rewards that he's talking about? Well, the first reward, there's three that we will look at that I think are pretty appropriate to this teaching, is um, two of the three are here on earth. The first is satisfaction. We have an internal satisfaction, this reward that we get when we do things with the right motives. For the sake of the next section when it says almsgiving. Have you ever given to someone where they didn't know that needed it and they received, a, they received financial help and they had no idea who it came from? Some of you are shaking your head. Probably a lot of you have done it if you're honest. How good did that feel? Were you satisfied? Steve, I know right hand, left hand. and yeah, Jess, I know right hand, left hand. I'm not pointing you out, but you're shaking your head like, subconsciously you're like, yeah, I've done that. I've done it. You've done it. You've helped people out without them knowing who was helping them. And you didn't do it so that you could get a plaque that you could put on your wall or your office that says, I donated this amount of money. I'm not saying for tax purposes that's wrong. I'm just saying you gave something to someone so that they could benefit and they could be blessed by it. And you did it with pure loving motives. And right here, it felt wonderful. You were serving Jesus so that you could bless other people. It had nothing to do with you. And I believe that's the first one of the rewards that he's talking about, is the satisfaction that we get for helping people when it's about God, and we're doing it because we're Christians, and we're not doing it because we want some notoriety. And third, or secondly... I believe that uh, this kind of leads me, this leads me into this thought of retirement. In the world's perspective, a, a reward for hard work would be retirement. Putting your feet up, getting the boat, going to the Bahamas, drinking a Mai Tai, sitting and just wasting your life away. That's like, that's, that's the world's view. What are you, you going to do if you had a billion dollars? Oh, man, I'd buy a boat, sail around the world, buy a little beach somewhere, and just put my feet up. Really? That sounds miserable. Put your feet up all the time? In God's economy, a reward for a job well done is more jobs. Do you... Do you realize that in, in Matthew 25, the parable of the talents, 
When they did good things with the, with the owner's money, you know what the, the guy did when he came back? He gave him more responsibility. <laughs> if there's a really good uh, guitar player or violinist, and they show a lot of skill, and they're working hard, and they do a job well done, do we say, good job, well done, you're finished? Or do we say, I'd like you to try this piece of music. Is that making sense? Like, I think a reward is more stuff to manage and to take care of and to deal with. And see that in Matthew 25. I want to read this in, uh, I want to read this real quick. More work. The second reward of the Christian life is still more work to do. In this, the paradox of the Christian idea of reward, that a task well done does not bring rest and comfort and ease. It brings still greater demands and still more strenuous endeavors. In the parable of the talents, the reward of the faithful servants was still greater responsibility. When a teacher gets a really brilliant and able scholar, he does not exempt him from the work. He gives him harder work than is given to anyone else. The brilliant young musician is given not easier, but harder music to master. The Christian reward is the reverse of the world's reward. The world's reward would be an easier time. The reward of the Christian is that God lays still more and more upon a man to do for him and for his fellow men. The harder the work we are given to do, the greater the reward. So are we talking, am I going to get more money or more responsibility to be a steward of God's kingdom work? I think that's the reward. And finally, the vision of God is what it was called. In the vision of God, this reward, don't miss this here. If you're just starting to wake up, this is a good time to wake up. The third and the final Christian reward is what men all through the ages have called the vision of God. For the worldly man who has never given a thought to God, for the worldly man who has never given a thought to God, to be confronted with God would be a terror and not a joy. The man on his deathbed that has not given his life to God is fearful of that meeting, is what he's saying. Fearful. I'm afraid what I might hear. If a man takes his own way, he drifts farther and farther from God. The gulf between him and God becomes ever wider until the end, until in the end, God becomes a grim stranger whom he only wishes to avoid. But if a man all his life has sought to walk with God, if he has sought to obey his Lord, if goodness has been his quest through all his days, then all his life he has been growing closer and closer to God. Until in the end he passes into God's nearer presence without fear and with radiant joy. And that is the greatest reward of all. When he talks about the reward in Matthew 25, which I looked at just a second ago and I didn't read the passage, but in Matthew 25, 23, after the talents have come, he says, his master said to him, because he had been given two talents, he came forward and he received two talents and I'm going to give you two talents more. And the master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. 
enter into the joy of your master. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. Beware. Be cautious. Take into account. Think about it. Before doing your righteous acts or your righteousness in order to be seen because you will receive no reward. Guys, as we go through this Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, and we start seeing Matthew chapter 6, and it's about giving to the poor, almsgiving, and we, and we read about prayer, and we read about fasting, and we're reading up storing up our treasures in heaven, and we see the things that Jesus told His disciples. I don't want to end this message on a, a somber concept or teaching. But you, we've got to ask ourselves, we've got to ask ourselves every day, are we living for God or are we living for me? You have to ask yourself that. It is an insane world out there. It's insane. People are men and they're saying, I think I'm a woman. People are women, and they're saying, I think I'm a man. And people think, well, you're getting political. No, what I'm getting is, they are saying, what God has done is wrong. The creator of the universe, what he did, how he created me, was wrong. This is a weird, weird world. And it's going faster and faster and faster and faster. And there is coming a time, and it may be before you're ready, and I hope not, but there's coming a time when we will have to kneel before the throne and we will have to look God in the eye if we can. We have to see Jesus and we'll have to answer that question and we'll have to hear those words. And the words we're going to hear are one of two things. I never knew you. Away from me. You evildoers. Only he who does the will of my Father. Or we may hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Those two words, faithful servant, are choice. They're obedience. And there are plenty of churches out there, if this rubs you the wrong way, that you can go to and they will tell you exactly what you want to hear, that you're okay. You're okay. You believe in Jesus? Oh, I believe in Jesus. Great. But only you know deep down whether or not you have committed your life to Him. If you have not committed your life to Christ, if you have not said, I want to make you my Lord, my Savior, my King, I'm going to be your servant, your bond servant, your voluntary slave. If you haven't done that, what are you waiting for? Next week? Maybe if the preacher preaches a really good sermon next week and I'm feeling called to it, then I will. Are you going to wait till next year? You may not have next year. You may not have next week. This isn't hellfire and brimstone. These are choices that people make. They're either going to choose Jesus 
or choose themselves. Those are the only two choices you have. One will lead you to reward. The other, not a good place. If you don't like, if you don't like public, if you don't like being the center of attention, that's not what giving your life to God is about. It's about your heart saying, I'm ready to make a decision. I'm ready to become a child of God. And if you don't know what that means in the depth of this, I got news for you. I do. I do know what it looks like. I've studied this in depth, and I understand what it means, and I know what God requires. Not suggests, I know what God requires according to this book. And if you want to set up a meeting today, tomorrow, Wednesday, I don't care what day. I will be there. I will make it happen. And I'll go over, this is what God requires. You may say, not interested. You may say, it's not worth it. I may explain to you about counting the cost. may not be something you're into. You may say, you know what? I think I enjoy my life too much, and I'll deal with the consequences. Okay. My hands are clean. I can wash my blood of all men because I've not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God according to this. I love you guys. I want to see you in heaven. But before, I want a potluck. We have potluck today, right? Potluck. Okay. Who has communion this morning? All right.